I will never forget meeting with a constituent who lost three limbs to meningitis, who rightly pointed out that if she had lost those same limbs in a car accident, she would have been considerably better off financially and would have received superior treatment and support. That is impossible to justify. You've got two classes of people in New Zealand who are disabled, uh, those from accidents and those from illness, and they're treated quite differently, and that is socially unjust. A mum that I know, her daughter was not on ACC and then was, and she said it's the difference between a Toyota Corolla and a Rolls-Royce service. Her language, not mine. It's an inequality and inequity fundamental to our system that makes all of the other inequalities worse. Welcome to The Detail. I'm Nikki Mando, and today I'm going to be looking at ACC, our Accident Compensation Scheme, why we have it, how it started, and what's changed in the more than 50 years since it was first dreamed up by visionary lawyer and judge Sir Owen Woodhouse. But more particularly, I'm going to look at something that's been called the scheme's original sin the often random seeming line that separates the haves, the people who qualify for ACC coverage, from the have-nots, those who don't. And I'm going to ask, why expansion of the scheme from covering just accidents to covering illness as well, an expansion that was planned virtually from the beginning and which those stuck on the wrong side of the line say is so desperately needed, has never happened. But first... I want to tell you about Ben. Or rather, I'm going to let his dad, Massey University Senior Lecturer Dr Andrew Dixon, tell you about his son. Ben was born in 2010. His birth was complicated in a range of ways. He came out purple and floppy and not breathing, needed to be resuscitated and collapsed in the neonatal intensive care and was revived and did pretty well after about five or six days and seemed to be pretty normal certainly for the first months years of his life but by the time he was three it was pretty clear he was pretty different to other little boys he took longer to speak particularly and now he's 10 he's intellectually just like any other 10 year old but he's physically disabled in a range of ways um, and he has some emotional challenges that other kids his age don't usually have what are the physical challenges he has cerebral palsy He can get around, he can run by himself in his own kind of way, but he has some coordination issues. How does that impact his day-to-day life, perhaps? He will have some issues in school when the other kids are playing sport. He can't keep up. There's also, he gets overwhelmed by noise, he doesn't know where it's coming from, so he can get really confused and frustrated with things like that. And he has issues around general things like being able to get a cup out of a drawer and turn taps on and just basic sort of living stuff. Socks are particularly hard. Getting socks on his feet, real challenge. The medical stuff is super complicated. But if you take it right down to basics... When you discovered he had cerebral palsy, what was the situation in terms of ACC, not ACC? Yeah, so we eventually got the diagnosis when he was six. Because we had no funding and all hadn't been identified by the clinicians during his birth, well, they did identify that he'd suffered a 
a um, what they call a neonatal encephalopathy, basically brain function not working quite right. So it can be transient and then it can come completely right or it can be terrible and cause death. They didn't file paperwork with ACC at that time, which is probably right because they didn't know. It is a very messy diagnostic area. We don't always know what's going to happen as a result of these kind of cases. So by the time we got an official diagnosis that required seeing a paediatric neurologist, we then went to see a private paediatrician in Wellington who put the paperwork into ACC. So I can't remember the name of the form, but you essentially file a form and say, just like you would if you tripped over and hurt your ankle, you would put a form in. And then ACC came back and said, this is a complex case. We need need some time. We're going to go and find an expert to give an opinion about what happened and they got all of our clinical notes about what occurred during birth and they went and found a obstetrician who wrote a report based on the notes to say what they think happened effectively we're still there so there's now been 18 of these reports i've written two because eventually we ran out of money, so now I'm rebutting the reports that the specialists write. Our argument is that, broadly speaking, my wife had a skeletal dysplasia, a dwarfism, which no one investigated well enough, and her care should have been managed by an obstetrician. And had that happened, she would have probably had a caesarean delivery, and probably that means that Ben would not have suffered intrapartum asphyxia and therefore wouldn't have cerebral palsy. And what do they say? What does ACC say? Uh, a lot. There's 200-odd pages. Um, I think they would argue that her form of skeletal dysplasia doesn't need complex care. Dixon says ACC doesn't want to accept Ben into the scheme because baby brain injuries are some of the most difficult and most expensive cases. A baby with severe brain injuries could potentially cost ACC millions of dollars over his or her lifetime. Of course, if that baby isn't funded by ACC, it doesn't mean getting no care at all. But Andrew Dixon and many others argue ACC provides better care. The best care. ACC have a very person-centric system, so they treat the person in front of them. That is not how we would necessarily characterise our public health system, which tends to treat the illness. Give me a practical example. Okay. I know a mum whose daughter had a brain injury as a result of a car accident. One of the things they'd hope would facilitate the recovery process is a hyperbaric chamber like they have in the, the Navy for preventing the bends. So ACC will provide funding for access to a hyperbaric chamber because it will assist in the recovery process. Whereas if that was useful for Ben, we would have to go through the public health system and I wouldn't even know where to start. I've mentioned it to my GP who just looked blankly at me and said, well, I could put a referral to the paediatrician. But the last time we did that, six months later, we got a, a, an appointment with a nurse practitioner. So basically, under ACC, they would be looking at Ben and there would be experts saying, what is the best way? To- How can we re- rehabilitate this this child? Because their whole focus is rehabilitation. So I don't know what they would do. It, his life might be completely the same, but they would definitely look at him in a different kind of way. It's not just about his treatment. Being on ACC or not being on ACC could make a huge difference to Ben's financial position for his whole life. He's 10... In eight years, he'll be 18. 
I've no idea what his capacity for work is going to be like. He may be totally fine, but if he's not, then the ACC's financial support for life for him is way better than what he would receive if he was just getting a disability allowance. Can you give me a number on that? So they pay about 80% of the minimum wage. So it's at least twice what you would get on disability. There is no doubt there is a substantial inequality between income support on ACC and disability support if you can't work. Now, I've got no intention of Ben not being able to work or find a career or going to university. I've got all of those ambitions for him. Um, and he has them for himself, to be fair. But the backup would make me as a dad feel a whole lot happier going into that kind of period. We care about our kids, you know. Susan St John, an associate professor at Auckland University's Business School, has been researching ACC much of her working life. She says the scheme favours working people over people who don't work, high earners over lower paid ones and often in practice, men over women. If you took the example of a high-flying executive male going to work on his lime green scooter and he causes an accident, he runs into a 60-year-old woman and they both have similar long-term damage done to them. He ends up on 78000 a year and she ends up possibly on an invalids-type benefit, supported living payment of about 11000 If she's lucky, if she's married to somebody who's working, she might be entitled to nothing. And yet the work that she is doing may be of considerable social value compared to the work maybe that he is doing and being very highly paid for it. And tell me about the, the rehabilitation of those two as well. Well, this is one of the underlying problems, that ACC has a Rolls-Royce system of rehabilitation and treatment. If you don't qualify because you didn't have something qualified as an accident but you were disabled, then you go on to a less generous, more complicated system of health treatments. You don't get that Rolls-Royce treatment. So one of the things that needs to be done with ACC is that we need to step back and say it doesn't matter what the source of your disability is, you should be entitled to the same health care treatment and rehabilitation and physiotherapy and have that all organised for you on exactly the same basis. What's extraordinary about this criticism about ACC And what makes it so different from criticism about some of our other government institutions, hospitals, prisons, railways, whatever, is that the criticism isn't about how bad the organisation is, but how good it is. It's coming from people who don't get ACC, not those who do. The argument is ACC, with its rehabilitation and compensation mandate, is largely doing well, or at least way better than the alternative which, of course, was what the plan was back in 1967. My name's Geoffrey Palmer. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I was retained as a barrister to write the original white paper about the ACC scheme after the uh, 1967 uh, Royal Commission report. Uh, I did that in 1969. I've been connected with the scheme ever since. That's Sir Geoffrey Palmer, former Labour Prime Minister, legal academic and writer. I ask him, 
Why did we need an accident compensation scheme? What was happening at the time was it was a forensic lottery. If you suffered a serious accident and you could prove negligence against someone causing that accident, you could get common law damages at a jury trial. Uh, You either went for the pot of gold at the end of the common law rainbow or you got nothing. And were there people getting that pot of gold? Oh, yes, uh, they certainly were. But there were also a lot of people who lost out, people who couldn't prove negligence or were up against someone who didn't have any money to pay. The government introduced compulsory workplace and vehicle insurance schemes to give people payouts if they had a car or workplace accident. But still, a lot of cases ended up in expensive litigation. This was a lottery. It wasn't fair and it wasted money. It cost far more money to do this than it would have been to pay out many people because the money was eaten up by insurance company overheads and by lawyers' fees. Uh, And, for example, in the United States, where this system still exists, at a trial, the lawyer will get 33.3% of the total verdict. So many other countries deal with that. Why did New Zealand go, there is a better way? It wouldn't have happened but for a visionary report by Sir Owen Woodhouse. Sir Owen Woodhouse was a decorated Second World War veteran and a lawyer whose career saw him rise to be President of New Zealand's Court of Appeal. In 1967, he was appointed to chair a Royal Commission into Accident Compensation. He died in 2014, aged 97, leaving ACC as his legacy. It was visionary. What the Royal Commission report did was to say, we will cover every accident victim for 24 hours a day, whether they're injured playing rugby or skiing or whatever they're doing, and they will get earnings-related compensation if they lose money through uh, not being able to work and they'll get free medical. This was an extraordinary thing and it took the common law world by by surprise. Um, for years afterwards, I found that people were visiting me from overseas trying to find out how New Zealand did this and what they did. And there was an enormous amount of interest in it because this was a visionary New Zealand reform. But it hasn't been adopted very widely overseas, has it? No, it hasn't. And the reasons for that are very obvious. When I taught in the United States, I found that the lawyers were making so much money out of it, they felt that they had to have this retained. An enormous amount of lobbying went on to ensure that no-fault schemes were not, not adopted in America. So Owen Woodhouse never intended his scheme to be limited to injuries. It was meant to be expanded to sickness and disability when money and political will allowed. The administrative mechanism that was recommended in the report was never set up. It was supposed to be in the Social Security area of government, not in the Department of Labour, where it was designed because they administered the workers' compensation scheme. The difficulty is, though, that you are left with a massive anomaly. People who suffer from cancer or suffer from other debilitating diseases are not covered by the accident compensation scheme and they don't get the generous amounts of rehabilitation, compensation and so on that that scheme provides. You've got two classes of people in New Zealand who are disabled, those from accidents and those from illness, and they're treated quite differently. 
and that is socially unjust. Was that a question of money to expensive? It was largely a question of money, but it was also a question that because it had been an insurance scheme before uh, and the monies were being taken from the compulsory insurances and transferred into this fund for accident compensation, it looked a bit like an insurance scheme. That kind of unfinished structure... The sheer complexity of the levy system with its 500 or so industry categories and 130 risk groupings and the political football ACC has been over the years, expanded during Labour governments, contracted under national, all this means the scheme hasn't ever achieved what Woodhouse intended, Geoffrey Palmer says. It's too remote from the New Zealand government. It's not part of a government agency in the true sense. There isn't much ministerial responsibility there's also the fact that the policy process for ACC works in a different way than it does for the social welfare system. And you need to have one department that is in charge of all of this. And the great machinery that the ACC has erected is an obstacle to that. And what has happened is that it has become a new lottery because you either get coverage or you have to go to the social security. If it was intended in the end to cover that social security aspect, why did it never do so? Uh, I made an effort when I was Prime Minister to uh, introduce a scheme and it was introduced into Parliament. This new scheme will enable a more equitable and efficient use of existing resources. It will help meet the costs of serious personal incapacity regardless of origin. It will promote rehabilitation and it will emphasise individual responsibility. It will remove some long-standing injustices in a vital area of social policy. It is the action of a compassionate and responsible government. It hadn't been passed at the time the Labour left government, and the result was that the next government didn't do anything to it and tried to reform accident compensation in other ways by reducing the benefits because they wanted to protect the employers from the levies, but the result of that was it wasn't sustainable and that that attempt had to be abandoned. That was in 1990. Fast forward to the Christchurch shootings last year and ACC was once more in the hot seat. Government ministers considered but rejected special support via ACC for people mentally traumatised by the Christchurch terror attack. Worried about setting a precedent if they did that, the government instead made payments via MSD, the Ministry for Social Development. John Campbell took up the issue with the Green Party's ACC spokesperson, Jan Logie, on TVNZ's breakfast show. I, I want to return to the specific because you and the Green Party, Sue Bradford, before you, lots of yeah. people have been on the record about the, the failure of ACC in yes. this respect. And what we are talking about in the mosque instance mm. is that had you received bullet wounds, you would be covered by ACC. Had you been there working as a cleaner or an electrician or whatever and not received bullet wounds but been traumatised, you'd be covered by ACC. But if you were there in neither of those capacities and you weren't physically injured, there is no coverage for trauma. That's right. What the Green Party is saying is that's wrong. What we are saying is that ACC, as it was initially intended, was there to provide consistent, coherent support for personal injury regardless of the cause. The Greens wanted to reform ACC and give anyone with a work-impairing health condition or disability the right to a benefit worth 80% of the full-time minimum wage. Too weak, 
Geoffrey Palmer says. Oh, I looked at their reform program and it's, it's too um, mild. What is needed here, you won't get this through party political promises. You have to have a proper analytical approach with careful costings and cost-benefit analysis. There needs to be another Royal Commission into this. What has happened is that a lot of people who are denied accident compensation claims end up having to go to court, uh, and that was not envisaged. It was thought that it should be simple to get a claim met because you didn't have to prove fault. Uh, And what has happened is that the Act was changed. I mean, medical malpractice cases, some of them are covered by the Act and some of them are not. That is anomalous and ridiculous. There has been judicial comment that the present legislation draws the line in difficult places and these are lines that do not need to be drawn and should not be drawn. Andrew Dixon, Ben's dad, thinks the Greens policy is on the right track. The fundamental principle is the right one. In effect, they want to have one point, which is this agency for comprehensive care, where you will go in order to get rehabilitated in terms of accident or injury or sickness or disability or finding yourself out of uh, employment so that people will be treated equally. Except that for the moment, the only thing the Greens are actually talking about changing is the amount of benefit someone who can't work will get. The rest of the stuff like making sure Ben gets the same treatment, the same rehabilitation, same level of care through the DHB system as he would through ACC, that wasn't on the Greens' election agenda. And no other party is even talking about it. I listen to our politicians in power and I hear what they're talking about, about a lot of kindness and fairness. They're constantly referring to our egalitarian roots. And I just think, and they know about this. I mean, Ian Lees Galloway mentioned it specifically in his leaving speech. When he left Parliament, he specifically talked about the difference between someone losing limbs through meningitis and losing limbs through a car accident. Now, he was the minister for ACC. The Prime Minister, she knows about it too. Here's her talking to John Campbell after the mosque shootings last year. And I want to go back to 2012 when Andrew Little was talking about this, the inconsistencies of ACC. And he said it's more than an inconsistency, it's an injustice. The stuff ACC does look after and the stuff it doesn't. And I wonder, is this big picture ACC stuff something the government is looking at? It's not on our work programme at the moment. It's not in your work programme at the moment. (laughs) Are you sniffing the air here? Are you thinking about this? Uh, Not in this term. I accept as a legitimate issue, though. I'm not going to deny that. That's it for today. I'm Nikki Mando. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley, produced by Alexia Russell, and Jesse Chang gave me lots of help. Thanks to Andrew Dixon, Sir Geoffrey Palmer and Susan St John. Kakite Arnold.